Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Kim Coco Iwamoto, who I really believe you are going to be hearing a lot about this year. Kim was the first openly trans person to win a statewide election. That was in 2006, and that also made her, at the time, the highest-ranking openly trans elected official in the nation. Now, she's running for lieutenant governor in Hawaii, and we had a really interesting conversation about that, as well as her long history of fighting for civil rights as an attorney and even before that with the group The Transsexual Menace. The Transsexual Menace is one of the first direct action groups for trans rights. So all that's coming up, but before we get to it though, don't forget that our old home at AfterBuzz TV is the number one place for all your TV talk needs, so make sure you check them out. And then as always, if you like our show, please subscribe, rank us five stars, and leave a comment on iTunes. Specifically, leaving a comment on iTunes is one of the biggest ways you can help our show to grow. All right, without further ado, here's Kim. So you were a member of the Hawaii State Board of Education. That's correct. You were elected in 2006, which made you the first openly trans person to win a state election. You got a lot of national attention during that time. Were you aware of that before? Uh, I suspected it might become noteworthy. Uh, I actually, in 2006, when I was campaigning, the Victory Institute, the Victory Fund, they called me when they heard of my campaign, and they asked us, how can we help you? And I said, at that time, I'm like, well, here in Hawaii, um, the LGBT movement is often seen as an outsider issue. So I said, I've had, I've had a lot of ties to the local community. I'm born and raised here. Um, and it's really important for my, for the voters to recognize that this is just me, one of them, one of their, their own running for office. And I'm not a pawn of the larger LGBT agenda. That's how it gets framed sometimes. Um, And we were just coming off of the marriage debate and all of this kind of fiery rhetoric. So I didn't want that to come start getting directed at me. So I thought, well, maybe if we make it a little bit like I am trans, but it's not like I'm trying to push a specifically, you know, LGBT agenda. Gotcha. LGBTQ, like only. Right. Although I have to say what got me to run for the Board of Education was that I was a foster parent at the time to openly trans and um, gay teenagers. And um, working with them and advocating for their education in the public school system, and also working with the youth groups that they belong to, um, hearing them um, share with me about how they're being um, bullied and harassed at school. And they asked me as an adult if I can go and testify at the Board of Education on their behalf to say, you know, as a foster parent or as a parent of a, of a student in your public school system, my child's not safe and their friends aren't safe, and what are you going to do about it? And so I started going to the Board of Education meetings, bringing that to their attention, and I just looked across the table um, at all of these elected Board of Education members, and there was kind of a blank face, and there was no assurance that they felt moved to do anything about it. So it hit me that, you know what, I need to make sure the students have a, a voice where the decisions are being made, and that they have an advocate on the inside. And so I said, I'm going to run for office. And we just had a very grassroots, we had very little money. And we just did a lot of sign waving. In Hawaii, we stand on the side of a major six lane highway and we wave down at cars in the morning as they're driving into work or as they're driving home from work. Uh, So we're just there smiling and letting them see the candidate and making eye contact. Wow. Yeah, it was really exciting in 2006. And at that time, you were a civil rights attorney. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, And 
I'm a businesswoman. I have an apartment building in Hawaii. Just um, we have the highest homelessness per capita in the whole nation. We have an extreme homeless crisis happening, and so my apartment building is now fifty um, percent of all the units are committed to housing um, previously homeless or. Um, families who would be homeless, but for their Section Eight subsidies. Oh wow! You know, I think about homeless. The issue is pretty bad in LA as well, although not as bad as Hawaii. But um, I think about it so much because part of me feels disgusted that I'm able to walk down the street and pass somebody homeless, and it doesn't ruin my day. Mm. To be completely honest, when I can't invite them in for dinner and like give them a house to stay in because there's too many, and right. that would be my full time job. Right. So beyond, like, so you had this apartment building, you were able to do this yeah, amazing well, thing. What I, I else can people do? As a foster parent, um, some of my kids were homeless before that. So I've been, and, and then as an attorney, I worked for Volunteer Legal Services Hawaii, which is like a legal aid, and we did um, legal clinics in homeless shelters. So it's always been part of my service, really, to the community. And because of the cost of living in Hawaii is so extremely high, and the pay is often really low, people are living paycheck to paycheck. Every, like there's, the majority of people in Hawaii are living one paycheck away from being homeless. So it's a, it's a crisis situation, and we have so many luxury condos being built um, to you know foreign to foreign uh, citizens of other countries buying you know they are speculating on paradise, and that itself then causes the market to go up, and it makes it really impossible for people who are earning a minimum wage in Hawaii to think of how they're going to pay their rent when the rents go up like that. Oh, so not so tourism is like the main industry in Hawaii, but it's also ruining your quality of life. You're saying, or not well, ruining? Oh, those are my a, words. There, no, there is a there is a price to um, that kind of um, marketing paradise, and I think we need to address that. And the same goes for you know, truthfully, the transient accommodations, like all of those that we see on Airbnb, and I'm sure every. Every city is dealing with this. The The fact that people are taking things off the market uh, that would have been in their normal rental market and then they're um, renting them out on Airbnb for a lot more money. So people are actually buying six units and putting them on Airbnb and that's their livelihood. And those six units used to house permanent residents. And so again, when you put that kind of strain on the housing market, it drives the rents up. And people can't afford them either. So it's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, factors kind of weighing in on what's creating this houselessness situation in Hawaii. So so I have a basic question that I want to ask just because I feel like if I'm wondering everyone else's, and that is beyond for the lieutenant governor, which you're running for, beyond stepping into the governor role if they resign or die, what is the actual role of the lieutenant governor? Right in Hawaii, it's it's pretty minimal. Uh, you're responsible for processing documents like name changes, I think alterations to birth certificates. Um, and you also are responsible for, for making sure that any publicly noticed or any meeting, government meeting that has to be public no, publicly noticed, you maintain that public notice um, database. And um, I believe it has something to do with Hawaii administrative rules. So it's very minimal. And you're yet you're provided um, a lot of staff. So I actually see it as an underutilized opportunity. And I'm trying to build a movement that's going to turn the lieutenant governor's office into the people's office. So the way our capital is set up, it's um, senators and representatives on the top, on the on the two floors or floors, 
maybe two to four, so three floors worth. And then the fifth floor is the governor's office on one side and the lieutenant governor's office on the other side. I think it'd be amazing if the community had their gatherings up in the lieutenant governor's office and then invited or summoned up uh, state legislators or the governors to come meet with them. Like, it'll be their office. I think it changes the power dynamic. And it says, yes, we're representative democracy and you represent us. Come talk with us. We're here. And so the, in Hawaii, does the, is the governor not on the same ticket with the lieutenant governor? Not until after the primary. Oh, I see. So hopefully the governor would be, agree with you in kind of transforming the lieutenant governor office. Um... They don't need to. Oh, really? Uh, it's they don't. Need, I don't need their agreement. Yeah, I can work with whoever the Democratic Party chooses to to nominate as its uh, a governor candidate. And one of my strengths, I think, uh, that a lot of Hawaii voters resonate with is that I'm not I'm not beholden to anyone. You know, I'm I'm beholden to my own values, and I'm beholden to the people and my my many, many years of establishing credibility. Yeah. You know, I'm very surprised, Ari, that you've said that your um, transness had, did not come into play in your last election, just because we just, Danica Rome was just elected in Virginia right. in the House of Delegates, and it was such a part of the election there. Is that because of Hawaii has a different understanding of trans people? I know like the word mahu. Yeah. Is that a rough translation to trans? Yes, yes, absolutely. So yeah, mahu have been recognized as a valuable part of the community in the traditional culture, the traditional Hawaiian culture. And I'm not native Hawaiian, um, but I... Oh, is mahu only for native people? No. I mean, it's a term that comes out of um, the host culture. So I like to recognize and honor the, the host culture um, and their language and their use of the word and what it means. You know, and I think it's different, again, when you say, hey, I, I was born and raised here and I know you. We went to school together. I mean, it's a very small town feel. And hearing about you standing on the side of a highway for a national or a, a statewide election, that's wild to a mainlander, <laughs> to be honest. No, and it's we're exposed to the elements. So sometimes we have umbrellas and uh, it's it's very distracting for drivers, actually. And So I bring up Mahu because... I feel like for the outsider perspective, it seems like there is this known precedence for gender nonconformity that we've only started to uh, get used to on the mainland. Ah, uh, I see. The media certainly made a bigger deal of it in 2006. Like I couldn't even to my election night and we had a little staging area if the media were going to come on the night of the election when I got elected the first time. No media came. So that's how the local media was like, oh, whatever. You know what I mean? The local media made such not a big deal. And it wasn't until the national media picked it up and asked their local affiliate stations to get some footage with me. They literally chased me around the next two days. So is that because to them, you're just Kim, this local woman? Yeah, exactly. That's so funny. It was like not even a big deal. And so the media, local media picked up on that. Like it wasn't really even a big deal. Uh, and, and I think I should say too that... Um, I mentioned that the first openly trans person to win a statewide office, Althea Garrison was a member of the House of Representatives. However, she was not open when she was elected. So I just want to like make, that's why we're saying that distinction. Yes, that's correct. So you went to FIT originally, the Fashion I Institute. I did, yes. That was my childhood dream was to be a fashion designer. That's a quite a big change in New York. From well, Hawaii. let me tell you about what happened. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a deep, deep seated, deep rooted dream of mine. Um, I grew up in the age of Dynasty with Joan Collins and, you know, Linda Evans and all that, all of those TV shows of Glamour, Norman Miller, Norman Miller. 
So after I got my degree, I, I got my first career, what I thought would be my first career launching job. And my employer had been uh, called at her home by one of her corporate clients. And this woman wanted to let her know that I was trans. It was very interesting because apparently her assistant uh, worked with, I went to school with me um, and so they knew that I was trans. And my boss and I never spoke about me being trans because why would we? How is that relevant? I just, it never came up, but I never felt like I had to hide it or I had to pass or assimilate or like that I had to think of myself as a cis woman. And at that time, the word cis wasn't really used. And I'm not sure, I don't even think transgender was even used at the time. Uh, and this is in the early 90s. So my boss spoke to me and said, I got a call last night and I don't know what to do about this. And they said they're uncomfortable working with you. And so she kind of put this pressure on me and we're a small company and uh, they were a very large corporate client. And basically I was constructively terminated. That's the technical uh, legal way of putting what happened, the series of things that happened that led me to basically finding myself without a job. Uh, and I couldn't pay my rent. I couldn't put food on my table. It made me realize, uh, and who would have thought, right? When you're growing up in Hawaii, you think of New York City as being a safe place for somebody who's trans, who's creative. And to get there and to be in that situation, um, it made me realize that the social injustice and then the economic impact of that social injustice became very real to me. And suddenly being glamorous and having fun was, was not a priority. Uh, so I decided at that time well, actually, so then what happened was I went to the I, to the to the LGBT center in New York City, and they had a legal clinic, much like the legal clinics I ended up doing later on in my career. But I went to a free legal clinic and found out that the laws at the time in the early '90s there were no laws to protect transgender people from employment discrimination. That the laws are really designed to protect employers so that they could discriminate against people like me or me and people like me. And we're talking about the '90s, but there's still 28 states where you can still get fired today. You know, that, that, so that's how early in the movement it was. And so then I happened to fall into a group with a group of activists at the time calling themselves transsexual menace. I'm like, what is this group transsexual menace? And then I realized that what we were, so what we did was we um, brought to light all of the discrimination that trans women were or trans people were facing. We took activism to the streets in Washington, D.C., where a woman named um, Tyra Hunter was hit um, by a car in a crosswalk. She was crossing the street. She was a pedestrian. And when the paramedics came to treat her injuries, they realized that she was trans and they kind of stepped away from her body. And um, she bled out and she died. Um, so we mobilized um, this group in, in New York City. We got on the train, we went down there, we picketed because we're like our lives, it felt like our lives didn't matter. And we wanted to make sure that the D.C. mayor and all of the people who were a part of this decision to abandon service of this of this woman uh, because she was trans, um, to make sure that they knew that we we're watching. We didn't want the media to drop this, so we took it to the streets. And we also did that for, I don't know if you remember, when um, Brandon Tina was murdered in Nebraska. Um, the movie Boys Don't Cry was made about Brandon. Oh, yeah. Um, and so we went to the trial 
of that case in Nebraska, and we made sure that the media knew that we were paying attention to uh, the murder of a trans person, uh, a trans man at the t- uh, in that situation. And um, so we kept doing all of these um, street protests, and that's where I got basically, that's where I, I learned how to be an activist and the importance of um, grassroots organizing and that kind of activism. And yeah, so I eventually, I so my intention then after that was like, wow, we really need to change the laws. Because the police would come up to us and say like, you can't stand here, you can't be here, which was all a lie. And I just wished we had an attorney with us at the time to tell us that's not correct. Um, so I decided I should go to law school and figure out the law so that it can't be used against us and to change, so I can figure out how to change the law to protect, um, to protect us. And uh, so I decided to go to law school. In the meantime, my mother had a, a severe stroke, so I deferred law school for a year to take care of her. I went back to Hawaii to take care of her. And then I finally made it to law school, and to law school at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. And, um, and that school is actually known for its public interest law. It, has a, it had, at the time, probably the least expensive tuition, so it attracted a lot of activists who didn't have to graduate from law school thinking they would have to take a corporate job and pay back all the tuition. Wow. It was a great decision. We had, uh, I developed a, a lot of amazing relationships there. And so I got my, uh, I graduated from law school. I moved back to Hawaii because my mother was still, you know, I wanted to be close to her as she was still alive. And she was in a nursing home by that point. Uh, and I came back to Hawaii and I worked on passing amendments to all of our civil rights laws to make sure they're inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity and expression. So the, the community in Hawaii definitely saw me as an activist, as an openly trans-identified activist. And I already owned my apartment building by the time I ran for the Board of Education. So, And I would testify as a landlord on housing bills to say, you know, don't give me as a landlord the opportunity to discriminate against somebody because they're straight or because they're not trans. Uh, That's so funny. Yeah, I could flip the script a little bit. Wow. Um, the, the transsexual menace group did a lot of work. I, I didn't know, realize you were part of that. That's yes. A, that's... Wow, but you have a lot of stories. <laughs> I, I do, and and I don't get to talk about that very often because it's kind of, as I mentioned earlier, the people in Hawaii don't like that doesn't really resonate with them, and it doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really resonate that kind of yeah. activism. That's pretty shrewd, I guess, to have to not earn to choose not to talk about it. Right, and it's also you know, but what is informative in Hawaii is. Every individual is seen not as an individual, but as a component of a larger group, meaning I would be able to talk about me as a caretaker to my mother. So let's say it's about public accommodations discrimination. If somebody were to discriminate against me for being trans and going to a restaurant or a store, and I'm taking my mother who's in a wheelchair, um, that is a problem not just for me. It's not a problem for my mother. It's a problem for my whole entire family uh, because we're all relying on me having access so that my mother can have access. So to see people as part of a group, whether it's family or community or also, you know, it's taking care of my, my nieces to a certain extent. And um, so to be a part of a larger network and people can re- relate to that. Suddenly people are like, Oh, I get it. This is not about an individual wanting a right to to wear certain clothing. This is about them having access so that everyone they connect to 
can benefit. Gotcha. Because I think that's great because uh, an issue I see with um, people who are minorities who are running for office is that the majority looks at them and thinks that they're going to be advocating only for the minority. When, right. Um, of course, it's not the case. And I get the question even during Do this. You? Even during this campaign. Uh, they misunderstand the story I'm sharing about being transgender and being discriminated against. And so it's my responsibility as a person being interviewed to put them back on the right way of thinking about it. And so what I would often say is, well, for instance, sexual harassment is a really big item in the news right now. So I want all of your listeners to know that I know what discrimination is, what harassment is, what that dynamic is like in the workplace. And I'm going to fight for all of them. Now think about all of their listeners or readers who can, who that will resonate with. So they want somebody who knows, knows the fight, who's had the fight and will fight for them and alongside of them. Wow. So it's about, it's my job to make sure it's broadened, that they see that this is where I come in. This is my access point. Cause I think a lot of people, um, they don't know where to place me. I mean, again, my family has had a, um, right now we're in three generations of a, of a certain family business that's very notable in Hawaii. And so people just see me as being affluent to a certain extent. Um, they see me as being privileged to a certain extent, um, educated. All of these things are pro- a certain level of privilege, right? Um, and in Hawaii, uh, Japanese Americans have been a part of a power system for quite a, a long time. So being Japanese American in Hawaii is part of, is a, on one level is a kind of a privilege. So to, to, to own my privileges and then to actually shift a little bit to say, but this is how I connect to people who feel they have, they're up against all of this status quo. Yeah. That I do relate and I do connect to the struggle. Yeah, it's uh, something that I think a lot about is how we have privilege in different circles and not privilege in other ones. So like growing up queer in the South, I was like maybe less privileged and yet I'm still a white man. Right. And I work in Hollywood now and everyone's gay. So I'm kind of like of the privileged and I'm still white. Whereas it's so interesting and compelling to hear a trans woman of color speak about being viewed as having a lot of privilege, right? Yeah. People wouldn't expect that. Well, it's contextual, right? Of course. It's so in, yeah, absolutely. So I have access to healthcare that I choose because I can afford it. And, you know, I can, I can choose to not go to certain places that I felt uncomfortable with and not everyone can afford that. Um, So I am very, aware of that responsibility when you can access when you can get access and when you can get into spaces to disrupt those spaces to make sure other people others and that's a you know others have access to that space as well yeah and you are giving back on macro and micro levels right being a foster parent as well as like legislation (laughs) right 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 there's so many ways i mean we have so many decisions we have to make in our life and i like to have um multiple returns on that investment or that decision. I love that. You mentioned your mother. She was an immigrant from Japan and was part of an internment camp during World War II. That's right. She was five years old when she was imprisoned for just being who she was. Right. And and she was in the camp for three years, which blows my mind. Um, It's so... It's wild to look back, I think, from this point in time because it feels implausible, right? What do you mean you locked up this entire group of people and yet... I think about this current administration and in 20 and 30 years, people are going to look back and not be able to understand because it's going to feel implausible again. 
Right, right. I think that's a very important point that, um, once again, those connection points uh, and, and the Japanese American internment experience does resonate in Hawaii quite a bit. And I appreciate you, you, um, bringing that subject matter up because I, I, I wondered how many of your listeners were aware of that history and how kind of recent it was in some ways. It's shockingly recent. Yes. And, and the impacts it had. So my mother's own recollections of her stories of being interned. And then she also remembers when they got out of the internment camps and they went back home. They were cantaloupe farmers. So they went back home to their family um, their farmhouse and there were actually 11 so my my mother was a, one of nine children so her and my grandparents went back to their two-bedroom farmhouse and uh, they remember sleeping outside because there was a family another family they didn't know living in their house because think about it that house was abandoned for three years so people just kind of lived in it and they stayed there and they weren't ready to leave when my when my mom returned to her home so she remembers vividly sleeping outside and watching people sleep in her home wow. and that kind of you know and that's that's very i think a hurtful memory you know feeling so um marginalized or disempowered and I know and I didn't know how to hear the shame and the um, the shame and all of those confusing feelings um, in my mother's in my mother's stories until I was discriminated against because when you are just and when you find out that the discrimination you experience is sanctioned by the government Ooh, it feels really it's very painful and did you grow up hearing stories about it about my mother's internment, yes. But I feel like she didn't speak about them like at family dinners. For some reason, I was very close with my mother and I, I always asked a lot of questions. So if there was something interesting, I always asked the follow-up question and I wanted to more and more. I don't think my brothers remember her talking about this because they weren't as in tune. Um, yeah, so again, it didn't make a lot of sense. I, I didn't hear all that until we got older, um, until I got older and I experienced and then it suddenly hit me really hard. It was very emotional to think of my mother's life after I had that experience. And then when you think about it, so my mother being interned and that indignation and, and the shame of that experience and then myself being discriminated in the workplace and then advocating on behalf of my foster ki kids and their experience of bullying and harassment in the public school system, which is government-run, um, all of these instances of government-sanctioned discrimination and the way the many layers, and that whole context of looking at what it means to be part of a, a representative democracy, where it's you know where our government is of the people, for the people, by the people. So when you're silent, when you're part of the majority and you're silent. Uh, when these injustices are done, you're being complicit, right? And so it really makes you think about the responsibility to take a stand for our allies, right? So um, I'm I'm protesting in the streets around the the DACA issue in Hawaii or um, the travel ban that's affecting a lot of families in Hawaii as well. Uh, so you know I'm. So even though it doesn't directly impact me, I see myself as an ally often to a lot of movements and the importance of allies in any civil rights kind of movement or in any social justice movement. And I have to say movement building and even running nonprofits and doing fundraising or for some candidates uh, for elected office in your fundraising, it is helpful to have 
a Westboro Baptist Church coming after you because it really does solidify the movement. So tactically speaking, I understand why that happens. Think about all the fundraising pleas you get from nonprofits or from candidates. I'm under attack. Please help. We're under attack. So this kind of attack mentality is a fundraising strategy. It is a movement building strategy. We're all being attacked. We need to rally together and join forces and build our unity. Like that's important. I know what you mean. Speaking about the political climate today, um, you've said that your father, while very supportive, does not agree with you politically on everything. I think that's such a common refrain I'm hearing about families who are just like not talking or being torn apart. and it's a really a, quite a big issue today because it is so personal. How have you f- dealt with that with your own family? Um, you know, we go through our own relationship evolution over time, and um, yeah, I mean, who? I mean, it's very personal and it fluctuates. Um, but generally speaking, he when I first decided to run for office, my father in two thousand six. Uh, he was very supportive. He was like, oh, you know, he said to me, we met for lunch and I was like, dad, I'm going to run for office. And he's been somebody who's actually given a lot to political campaigns in Hawaii. So he knows like all of the old guard um, uh, politicians in Hawaii and they know him. And there was a time in Hawaii politics where people went around with you know, suitcases of cash. Um, I mean, it was it was a very interesting time when there wasn't all of this monitoring of contributions and stuff like that. Uh, but he he helped a lot of uh, politicians in Hawaii, so he he had he had uh, teeth in the game, I guess. And so when I met with him, he, I I. I I was trying to warn him that if I win it, it could be, you know, really a a media frenzy potentially. And he basically said, well, you're not going to (laughs) win. So we both came to that kind of different conclusions after our lunch. He's like, well, you're not going to win, but you're going to learn a lot. So I'm happy to support you. Uh, And so he did. He contributed to my campaign and um, he let his friends know that he was, you know, to support me and help me. And he assured me this time again that he's supporting, he's going to make sure his friends know that he supports me. And so, I mean, that was, and that's really important. So as an openly trans person for the people of Hawaii to see that my family supports me through their contributions and through their networks is really important. Yeah. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, back to your main question. I want—I don't want to be one of those politicians who doesn't answer the question. Your question was about the, the complications of disagreeing on certain issues, yeah. but coming together as a family. Yeah, it sounds like your father's able to disagree with you and still respect what you're doing. And yeah, engage to you in some that. extent. I, I hope that's true, and I, I do love him regardless do you speak of about his issues with him jokingly gotcha i think you know it's so funny when uh trump was on the ballot he's like oh my god i'm gonna tell all my friends to write you in as uh, a writing candidate for his vice president <laughs> like that's how he jokes about things gotcha you know um i i ask knowing that there's not a one fit all answer for every family and that it's different but and it changes uh, it does right? yeah um it's complicated time <laughs> it is it's complicated and for him, tax relief may be his number one issue. For your father? For my father. Like, oh, wow. he might really care very passionately about paying less taxes. I'm just saying he's a businessman and he's not thinking about um, 
how to make money, how to hold on to money. And, and, you know, and I'm always wondering, well, how much money do you need? And, you know, what are you willing to give up? And, you know, you have more to lose. So you have to invest in the social safety net. Like, um, so it's, it's, it's complicated. Uh, and so for, it's to ask him to vote for somebody who goes against his interests to support, it's very, it's very interesting. It's compl- it is complicated. And I have a lot of friends who's, whose father's, um, I don't know if my father voted for Trump. I don't know if he's joking, but, um, but I have other friends who's, who indicate that their parents have voted for Trump and it's it's generational, right? It's this idea of, I want to pay less taxes. And I'm from the point of, well, I think we need to cut some of these loopholes. And I just found out that in Hawaii, uh, we have the, one of the lowest corporate tax rates in the nation. And so I just need to remind my father about that, (laughs) that he's already getting a huge discount. So we have one of the lowest tax rates. We have one of the lowest property taxes. This is why the cost of living and what's happening in Hawaii is happening. I feel like it's, we have an imbalance of assets and, and, and resource management. Wow. Thank you so much for being here. If people want to find out more about you, should we send them to your website? Yeah. KimCoco.com. K-I-M-C-O-C-O.com. Fantastic. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Big thanks to Kim for this. Now, this is the time in the podcast where I'm supposed to thank you for leaving iTunes reviews and then read one out loud. But because I am the only host here, I would only pick the most glowing review ever. And that just feels so self-indulgent because clearly I wouldn't read a bad one. And my ego is big enough, I promise. So I will just say this. If you've left a review, thank you. If you've not left a review, the time is now. Ranking us five stars, subscribing, and leaving a comment on iTunes is one of the biggest ways that new people find our show and is so appreciated. So thank you for doing that. And then I should probably mention too that this summer I'm going to be doing AIDS Life Cycle where we'll be cycling from San Francisco to Los Angeles to raise money for the life-saving services that the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and LA LGBT Center provides. If you want to or are able to contribute, I would absolutely love that. And every little bit counts. I have a page up at tofighthiv.org slash go to slash jeffmasters1. There's also links in the show notes and all across all my social platforms. I tweet from at jeffmasters1. That is also a great way to recommend guests. I love hearing your recommendations each week. That's at jeffmasters1. And then you can also sign up for our newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com to stay up to date on all new episodes and live shows. Special thanks to AfterBuzz TV, to our partners at Panama to the Elon University in Los Angeles studio, Jason Kimberty, and everyone for listening. We'll see you next week.